Once again, I just think God gets so much glory from hearing these people's stories, and there's, there, there are, they are their stories, but really they're not about them. They're about God and his, his work in their lives, and um, again, just encourage you, as they've done this vulnerable thing, to share their lives with you. Uh, as church members here, would you please extend your hand to them and, and, and do that vulnerable thing by, by greeting them, telling them uh, your story and how Jesus has, has saved you. I want to dismiss our kids to Kids Connection, so pre-K and kindergartners, you guys are free to go to room three, which is right out the back doors of the sanctuary here. Turn to Mark 12 if you're not there already. We're going to finish uh, another chapter in Mark's gospel this morning, Mark chapter 12. I've been thinking this week about a uh, quotation from St. Augustine, and it's a quote that I left on the cutting room floor of last week's sermon, but it's one that I cannot get out of my head. This is Augustine saying in the fourth century, he said, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. And that's a quotation that connects with Mark's gospel all over the place. If we are to value Jesus Christ above all, that requires us to know who Jesus is. And that's exactly the reason Mark wrote his gospel. To answer the question, who is Jesus? You you read Mark's gospel and you see that the question, who is Jesus, it is on everybody's mind. And here's the deal. 2,000 years later, it's a question that's still on everybody's mind. If you pay attention to TV documentaries in these weeks that are leading up to Easter, you know, PBS and, and the Discovery Channel and the History Channel, they're all running some program on the life of Christ, who he was, what he did, what he didn't do. And these documentaries, they, they tend to take a certain shape, don't they? You know, they line up six to eight liberal scholars, a few historians, a few theologians. They label them as the definitive authoritative experts. And then without fail, these scholars will divide the biblical record of Jesus in half. And they'll use this kind of language. They'll say that there's a historical Jesus, and then there's the Christ of faith. So there's this guy who really lived. They don't deny that a man named Jesus lived in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago. They don't deny that. They don't deny that he had some kind of following and, and that there is a reliable historical record of him. But they do deny the side of the story that really matters, which is he's the Son of God, and he performed miracles, and ultimately he rose from the dead. But that's not the historical Jesus, they say. That's the Christ of faith. Believers believe those things because of faith, not because of what really happened. So what can we say about these shows? What can we say about these Newsweek covers and Time magazine covers that always show up this time of year? Fundamentally, I think we can say that they don't want a Jesus with any real authority. Because that would mean they have to believe everything about him and obey everything that he said. It's much easier, excuse me, it's much easier to be an authority over Jesus than be a person under the authority of Jesus. Which that perfectly summarizes 
what is going on in Mark chapter 12. The religious authorities in, in Israel, a group called the Sanhedrin, they've been asking life's most important question, who is Jesus? And they've been prompted to ask this because Jesus has interrupted the Passover celebration with a parade into Jerusalem. He did that at the start of chapter 11. He then comes into the temple and ransacks the place, completely interrupts the way the Sanhedrin had been profiting from the buying and selling of animals and the exchanging of temple currency. And then since he did that, he has been teaching in the temple courts. And so they start questioning him. Where did you get this authority? What kind of authority is this? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? What if a woman has six husbands? Who will be sh- who, who's she going to be married to in heaven? What's the greatest command in the law? They're just question after question. They're peppering him. They're examining him. They're trying to figure him out. Who are you? And with each question, Jesus turns the tables on them. He gives the question back to them in a way that shuts their mouths. And so at the end of the last section, the section we studied last week, verse 34, it says, and after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. He has displayed his unrivaled authority. But the scene doesn't close there. Jesus has a question of his own to ask. So let's read Mark 12. We're going to begin reading in verse 35. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Verse 38. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes, who like to walk around in long robes, and like greetings in the marketplaces, and have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is God's Word. This passage has two major sections that we'll be looking at today. The condemnation of the scribes and then the commendation of a widow. Let's look at the condemnation of the scribes, verses 35 through 40. Jesus first condemns the scribes because of their lack of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is a word that means right teaching or right doctrine. 
And the scribes, as the primary teachers in Israel, they prided themselves on this very thing, their their sound interpretation of the Scriptures. They were seen as the guardians of sound teaching. And Jesus proceeds to expose their lack of sound teaching by asking them the question that they've been asking him. They've been asking, who are you? And so Jesus comes back with, yeah, who am I? Ralph Martin says of Jesus' words here, after a day of questions comes the question of the day. So here it is. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? That's the question Jesus levies. He says it in a couple of different ways. Now, is the Messiah the son of David? Yes, he is. Did the scribes say that? Yes, they did. Is anyone here in this story saying Christ is not the son of David? No, no one is saying that. So Jesus isn't, by asking this question, trying to prove otherwise. The title, Son of David, is conceptually adequate to describe the Messiah. That's because the Old Testament said that an anointed one would come and rule Israel. He would put all of God's enemies under his feet, and that that anointed one would come from the family of David. David had been Israel's greatest king. He was a shepherd, a poet, a warrior, an administrator. And the Jews regarded David's reign as the golden age in Israel. And there was also a covenant established by God, the Davidic covenant that said that David's house would be restored, that a Davidic dynasty would reign forever and ever. And when it says forever, it means forever. And so because of this, in generation after generation, the Jewish people, they pinned their hopes on this son of David, on this coming Messiah, the, the anointed one who would be of the line of David. So son of David is an adequate description of the Messiah. Jesus is not questioning that. But what Jesus is going to show from the scriptures is that the Messiah is not simply the son of David. And he does that by using Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. 33 times Psalm 110 is referenced in the New Testament. It was what's called a messianic psalm, a psalm that gives clues about who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. And by using it here, Jesus is saying, if the scribes really know the Scriptures... They would see something in Psalm 110 that would explain exactly who I am. And I admit, you read this part of Psalm 110 and things can get a little confusing. The language is sort of dense. But notice, Jesus starts out quoting this psalm the same way I do when I read the sermon text each Sunday. He says, David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, basically... So from the preface, we know that these words from David, they're his words, but they're also God's word. Jesus believes in a divinely inspired scripture. And then he goes into the scripture, verse 36. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your feet. And then verse 37, a follow-up question. David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Jesus is asking the scribes how the great King David can describe one of his descendants as greater than himself. 
A son would never be considered greater than a father. A descendant never seen as the Lord over a patriarch. So how can King David, great King David, describe one of his descendants as greater than himself? And his point, Jesus' point in doing this, is to show these vaunted scribes, to show them that they have missed something very, very important about the Messiah. Let me read it to you according to how it was written. In your English Bible, when the word LORD is in all caps, you can look at the passage there, when it's in all caps, that's God's name, Yahweh. But when it's capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, see the difference there as you look at the text in front of you? That's God's name, Adonai. All right, so let's read it with that in mind. Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. So we have Yahweh speaking to Adonai. And Psalm 110 is not saying the Lord said to himself. No, these are clearly two distinct people. Verse 37, let's translate that one the same way. David calls him Lord. David calls him Adonai. So how is he his son? Jesus' point, the Messiah is from the line of David. Just as you say, so in that regard, he is David's son. But he is also not simply David's son. He's God's son. He is Adonai, divinely seated at Yahweh's right hand, legitimately exercising dominion and justice. And otherwise, in other words, the Messiah is to be a man, but he's to be more than a man. He is to be God as well. So Jesus is saying to the scribe who just questioned him, the one we talked about last week, and he's saying to any scribe or Pharisee within earshot, you're not far from the kingdom, but you're not in the kingdom because you don't see me as the Messiah. In fact, scribes, you don't even understand the Messiah. The Messiah is the Lord, God in the flesh. That's what the scriptures clearly say. Once again, we have Jesus making strong assertions that he is God. If he is this anointed one, the Messiah, the Christos, according to Psalm 110, he is David's son and the divine son. So clearly, the scribes fail in their interpretation of the scriptures. And if your orthodoxy is bad, your orthopraxy will be bad. So let's look at their evil orthopraxy. Orthopraxy means right living. So it's an oxymoron to say evil orthopraxy. You can't have evil right living. I recognize that. But they thought they lived right. They thought they were the rightest of the right. However, as you read this, I can't imagine a worse description of a religious leader than what we have here in verses 38 through 40. He first says, beware of the scribes. The Jews had a saying that Moses received the law and gave it to Joshua. Joshua received the law and gave it to the elders. The elders received the law and gave it to the prophets. The prophets received the law and gave it to the scribes. So the scribes were seen as the possessors of the law, the gatekeepers of all that was supposed to be true about the word of God. The scribes were revered and respected because of this. But Jesus is saying, beware of these men. Not only because they misinterpret the word, 
Not only because they get Psalm 110 wrong, just thinking that the Messiah is going to be some earthly king, but because they're hypocrites and they're selfish. Look at how he reveals their character. He says they like to walk around in long robes. They would wear these these long scribal robes. And attached to these robes would be tassels. And, And the custom goes back to the book of Numbers where tassels were prescribed as a reminder so that when they walked, their hands would brush against these tassels. This would give them sort of a constant reminder to obey God's word, obey God's law. I'm so glad we have the Holy Spirit now. We don't have to have all these weird sort of instrumentations to remind us to obey God's word. But that, that was the purpose, that they would constantly be hitting these tassels with their hands and their fingers as they walked and their robes flowed as they went. But as the centuries, as they went on, the tassels would be made larger and larger and more ornate. They would sort of bling them out, you know, bedazzle them, I guess you might say. And, and they would sort of, these tassels, they would become a badge of distinction. And no one would be as tasseled as a scribe. And it also says they liked greetings in the, marking, in the marketplaces. Luke says they loved these greetings. They loved them. So as they moved about in public life with their you know, special, fancy, unique, tasseled robes. Everybody would see them and know who they were. Everyone would know they were scribes. And because of this, they expected greetings, which is essentially they expected titles. Titles of dignity. Teacher, master, excellent one. Some of them like the term father. There are some pastors today who really like titles. Some want to be called doctor if they've earned it. Some like the formal title reverend, some father, some on TV go by bishop or apostle. I I helped out with an inner city ministry in in Oklahoma City when I used to live there, and and we cooperated with a church whose pastor had me call him Bishop Elder Tankersley. And then the associate pastor went by District Elder Braxton, and then the other associate was Senior Elder Hooks. And I was just like, man, call me Jay. That's it. Just call me Jay. Because here's the deal that can sometimes get lost. The, the preacher is just one of the people. He, he's saved from among the people, given a call to feed and, and lead the people. But, but that's all. He's not to be exalted. He's not to be worshipped. And I probably don't have to say this, but I will I'm no different, I'm no better than, than any of you. I'm a man in desperate need of God's mercy and grace. In fact, I'd put myself up against the most vile sinner in the room this morning. I would, and I'd probably win. And you're like, but Jay, no, you're the pastor. No, I, I, I'm a sinner who, who God has called to serve the church in a certain way. It doesn't make me more exalted or, or, or better, and it certainly doesn't make you beneath me, not at all, not at all. And then it says they love the chief seats in the synagogue. So in the synagogue, there were benches reserved for the scribes. Sometimes those benches would be on a platform area like we have here. Sometimes they would surround the perimeter of the room, and you say, well, you know, Jay, a reserved seat, that's not a big deal. Look, you know, we reserve a seat for you in the front row. You know, that's not out of the ordinary. 
Yeah, but in the synagogue, the people sat on the ground. So scribes had these places of honor. The people sat on the floor. Verse 40, they devour widows' houses. Let that sink in. They're supposed to be the shepherds of the sheep, and is there anyone who needs to be guarded and protected more than the widows? No. But what do these men do? They devour them. That means to plunder them. It literally means to eat them up. Because as teachers of the law, they had legal jurisdiction, and they used that jurisdiction to take advantage of widows. They would draw up estate plans and write themselves in. So when a widow died, the estate would not be left to the family, it would be left to the scribe. They would encourage and require large gifts in the temple, gifts that would come back and line their own pockets. This is what the scribes did. I couldn't help but think about, as I was studying this passage this week, and then was sent a news story about a prominent TV preacher, a guy named Creflo Dollar, aptly named, I think. Um, he is appealing to his people right now uh, for a new $65 million private jet. And it's to the replace the one that he's had for a good number of years, but it's getting worn out. So he's got about 200,000 people. He feels like follow him and contribute to him. And he's saying, hey, all of you give me $300 a piece, and then I can get this private jet. no doubt, at the expense of some widows' houses, I'm sure. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. So they don't don't really want to talk to God. They don't have anything to say to God, but they'll string out their prayers so they'll appear righteous and holy as if they have a relationship to God. And here's what we need to remember about this. The need for attention and notoriety is directly related to your spirituality in this way. They are inverse properties. So the more attention you need for your spirituality, the less spiritual you actually are. When you have nothing on the inside, then the outward expressions of spiritual life, they have to expand and explode to try to compensate. Because you can manufacture the outward display, and people in churches do a pretty good job of manufacturing it. That's what the scribes did. But you can't manufacture true spiritual life and vitality. Can't manufacture it. They didn't have it. So they had to go overboard with what was on the outside. And then at the end of verse 40, what does Jesus say? What is the fate of this wicked bunch? They will receive the greater condemnation. These are the kinds of people Jesus referred to in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. He said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, by all this behavior he just described. He goes on, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, the greater condemnation. So that's the condemnation of the scribes. Let's quickly look at the commendation of the widow, verses 41 through 44. Jesus begins by observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. 
And this must have caused him immense pain to see so many giving their money to this apostate, corrupt system. People giving under the assumption that they were doing something for God that would produce a blessing from him. And he comments, many rich people were putting in large sums. They had a lot, and so they gave a lot. That was the system. The system the Sanhedrin had set up, it demanded almsgiving. If you had a lot, you could give a lot. And those gifts would return to you, in their teaching, it would return to you favor and good standing with God. Remember our story of the rich young ruler back in Mark chapter 8. The rich had the capacity to give alms, which secured them blessing and favor with God. Which is why it is so stunning when Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. People are astonished because according to this system, it worked exactly opposite of that. So Jesus observes the rich giving because that's what they did, and they usually made a show of it as they approached these 13 shofar-like receptacles that surrounded the court of women in the temple. It would empty their coinage into these brass receptacles, and I'm sure it made quite a racket. But over against that, Jesus observes a poor widow, a widow who came, and Jesus watches her as she puts in two small copper coins, two lepta. Lepta means thin. It was the thinnest of the currency. This is a poor widow. The the word is a word that means destitute. This is a destitute widow. This is one of the widows who's been devoured by the scribes, exhibit A, in what Jesus had just taught them. And she puts in her two copper coins. The amount would have been about one sixty-fourth of a denarius. So one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. That's all she had. The smallest coin used by the Jews, and she put two of them in. That was it. Jesus watched as she dropped them in these these horn-shaped receptacles that sat at the, the entrance to the court of women. Dr. John Brodus, he was a famous Southern Baptist preacher, There's a story that says on a Sunday during the offering, he came down from the pulpit and walked up and down the aisle following the plate. And he observed what people were putting into the plate, and some people were rather embarrassed, and others were quite annoyed. And then he gets back into the pulpit, and he begins a sermon on this text, and he says, you're upset with me, but remember that Jesus goes up and down the aisles with every usher, And he sees every cent. That's what this text tells us, that he sees, he notices, he's observing. But he also gives an ovation. And he calls his disciples to himself, verse verse, verse 30, excuse me, 43. And he says to them, truly I say to you. Which doesn't mean the other things that Jesus said weren't true. It just means listen up. This is important. Truly I say to you. This poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, had put in everything she had, all she had to live on. It's not difficult to give 10% of a lot of money. That's not difficult to do. Dropping from 50000 to 40000 a year doesn't crush you. 
dropping from 200,000 to 180,000 doesn't really affect your quality of life that much. But this woman, she gives everything. Everything. She had no savings, no investments, no guarantees, no bank balance, no Social Security. Tomorrow she'll wake up and she'll try to find some money to survive. She gives everything. And of all the people in the world, she had a perfect excuse to say, what possible good are my two small copper coins? What possible effect is my almost worthless gift going to have on this grand temple of Herod's? And would the treasury, would the temple treasury have missed her two cents? No, absolutely not. It wouldn't have missed him. She had every reason to provide an excuse. But she doesn't. And though no one gave her much notice that day, Jesus noticed. And he shares it with his disciples, and the disciples write it into Scripture. And so she, she becomes a model for generosity for 2,000 years. This woman gives the most famous gift in history, bigger than the Rockefellers, bigger than Carnegie, bigger than Ted Turner, bigger than Bill Gates, bigger than T. Boone, bigger. This no-name woman gives the biggest gift of all time, a gift that would encourage sacrificial giving for centuries. Little did she know, little did she know. Contrast that with a story from Paul Harvey. Don't you miss Paul Harvey? He tells the story of a woman who calls the helpline service of the Butterball Turkey Company. And he asks whether the turkey in her freezer that had been there for 23 years was safe to eat. And the customer service rep said, well, it would be okay if the freezer had maintained a below zero temperature throughout that entire period, but it's probably not going to taste very good. And the woman said, oh, that's what we thought. We'll just donate it to the church. Stings a little, right? The mentality that says, we don't need it, we'll just give it to the church. But that's not this woman's thinking. She needed this money. And she may not have done the wisest thing in the world by giving it, but Jesus wasn't about to point that out. Rather, he commends her heart that loves the Lord. Isn't that what Jesus teaches? That where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's this woman, and she puts in everything because she loves the, the Lord. She's a living embodiment of the greatest commandment that he just gave the scribe, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind your strength. With all of you, she gave all that she had. Another story is told. I don't have any means of, of verifying it. But there's a little girl in a church, and when the offering plate comes around, she puts in her doll. Her little baby doll. This is the doll she's taken to bed with her at night. She gets up in the morning and carries it around under her arm. It's her treasure, and she, she puts it into the offering plate. And, of course, the ushers are touched, and, and the pastor likewise. And so during the course of the next week, he comes around, and he visits the family, and he brings the doll with him, and he says to the little girl, I'm giving her back to you. And the little girl wipes a tear from her eyes and shakes her head and says, No. And when the pastor asks why, she says, I didn't give it to you. I gave my doll to the Lord. It's the sacrifice. It's not the amount that Jesus here sees. It's not the amount that he, that he sees. 
here. It's, it's the sacrifice. And why is that? Because what is it that Jesus gives? Not the leftovers. Not the things he isn't going to miss. Jesus is going to give everything. He's going to give himself, his whole self. He's going to give his life for sinners, for you and me. He will hold nothing back. In that way, this woman is a model of his sacrificial life. And it's by that sacrificial life that you and I have eternal life if we trust in him. If we, gosh, just take to heart some of the words that were spoken here in these testimonies today. If we think through how maybe our lives mirror some of these experiences and watch how as one dealt with depression and as another dealt with fear of death and as another dealt with assurance and as another dealt with just not knowing the gospel, we come and we hear about Jesus and we understand what it means to put our faith in him because he's died on the cross for our sins. We do that and we have eternal life, but it's based on his wholehearted, complete, hold nothing back sacrifice. That's why it's called a sacrifice. If he truly is the son of David and the son of God, and he gives his whole life for me, what sacrifice is there that's too great for me to give? Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for what's here in the word for us. And Lord, we thank you that you weren't just a human Messiah, that Jesus Christ was the God-man, the divine Son, the only suitable sacrifice for our sin, who came and gave everything for us. So in light of that, Lord, we just we want to give you all of ourselves. And so, Lord, we, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, which compels us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, which restrains us and guides us. Lord, save us from an evil, wicked, outward religion and save us to your Son, the Lord Jesus, who bears fruit in our lives and rescues us from condemnation. We praise you today. I thank you for these people in this place. Bless them as we go here in a few moments. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.